Thanks very much, Barry, and good morning, everyone. Um, uh, as you've heard, my name is Jonathan, Jonathan Mason. I'm one of the lay readers here at Holy Trinity. Just over a week ago, we, held a, we celebrated a significant birthday in our family. I'm not going to tell you exactly whose birthday it was, because any preacher who actually refers directly to his, um, his or her spouse or directly names his or her children is liable to a heavy fine. So I'm not going to tell you it was my wife Sarah's birthday. Whoops. Um, <laughs> but it was. And... Um, uh, it's a lovely celebration, and uh, as is usual on these occasions, there was food. There was a tea party. Some of you were there. Um, and uh, the big question was, will there be enough food to go around? And people queued, and they helped themselves, and, um, and there was enough food to go around. It was like the feeding of the 5,000, really. And uh, there's food left over. Not 12 baskets full, but still food left over. And we had it for a nice picnic the following day. And there's still birthday cake being eaten in our household today. Um, so that was great. But um, a lovely banquet in its way and a lovely celebration. Now, I don't know if you realise, but in this sixth chapter of Mark's Gospel, there's not one but two banquets going on, and they couldn't be more different. And as we look in particular at the second of these, the, uh, the well-known passage about the feeding of the 5,000, I would like to go no further uh, before I offer a prayer. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, uh, I feel, and perhaps we feel, uh, alarmed and excited in equal measure at what you say and do, who you are and why you came, and what you call us to do with you and in your name. So calm our fears and channel our excitement so that we may see afresh who you are, what you came to do, and how we can work with you in the purposes of your glorious kingdom. Amen. So we're in uh, Mark chapter 6 and uh, paying particular attention to verses 30 to 44 that uh, Barry just read to us. The two banquets, then, uh, are, go like this. Uh, and uh, Nigel Parfit preached, I think, last Sunday morning on the first of these. The, the first was held in a palace by a king, attended by his courtiers, and they had rich food and, no doubt, flowing wine, and it led to murder, the murder of John the Baptist, beheaded and his head served up on a platter. The second was held in the wilderness, attended by 5,000 ordinary people, and they all ate their fill, and it leads, led them and leads us once, once again back to that question, who is this man? Now, before the account of... Uh, by the way, can I just encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you as I refer to... Um, various verses here. Uh, it's page, in the church Bibles, it's pages one, page 1009. 1009 in the church Bible. But if you just look back to the previous page, 1008, you'll see that before the account of the beheading, that gruesome beheading of John the Baptist, 
Jesus has sent out his 12 disciples two by two into the various villages, surrounding villages up uh, around in the Galilee area. And um, they have returned now, do you see that in verse uh, 30? They've returned to Jesus excited but exhausted. Excited, they tell Jesus everything they've done um, uh, and, and witnessed, although Mark passes over the detail of that. He's got something more important to tell us. Um, but also, Jesus recognised they're tired. He sees that they need to rest and recuperate, and so he says, well, come along with me, and we'll find some peace and quiet. However, the crowd chases after them. One little detail that I hadn't noticed before um, is the fact that they are not simply following Jesus, although Jesus by this stage in his ministry is has become very popular. His name has become known even to King Herod. Um, But it's when the crowd see them, Jesus and the disciples, because the disciples have been going out into the villages, casting out demons, healing people. And it's when the people see the disciples and Jesus, they think, well, we'll have some more of this. And they clamor after them and chase after them and give them no rest and give them no peace. What happens from what happens next? I would like to draw out three truths about Jesus and who he is and what he says and what he does. I'd like to speak to you first of all about his wonderful compassion. Second of all, about his impossible demands. And then thirdly, about his amazing power. You notice with me, first of all, Jesus' wonderful compassion, particularly in verses 32 to 34. We read there that he had compassion on this clamoring crowd. Why? Because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, in biblical terminology, the word shepherd is not simply a pastoral role. It also has a regal connotation. God's leaders and kings in the Old Testament are often referred to as shepherds. And Israel at this time had leaders aplenty. There was Herod, king, and there was the priests and the scribes. Those leaders could boast a magnificent temple, a large income, thronging congregations, but they were not doing their job. They were not shepherding the people. They were not leading or protecting or guiding the people. Going back once again to the Old Testament, Moses and Joshua were often referred to as shepherds because they did lead and guide and protect God's people. They led God's people not only to safety, but also, especially in Joshua's case, to victory. And when Moses came towards the end of his own life, he prayed the following prayer. It's recorded in Numbers chapter 27. May the Lord appoint a man over this community, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus is now standing in that tradition, looking back to Moses 
and the kind of leadership that he was able to, um, to give under God. And is now saying, the nominated leaders of Israel are not doing that job. He's implying, I will. Jesus sees people without direction. He sees them as lost sheep. Please notice that he doesn't see these thronging, confused crowds as criminals to be condemned. He sees them as lost wanderers to be found and brought home. He doesn't see them as chaff to be burned up. He sees them as a harvest to be reaped for God. And he will demonstrate his compassion practically. He will heal them. Matthew and Luke, in their accounts of, uh, 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 of this, uh, of this um, episode, uh, say that he healed them, and he will certainly feed them. But first of all, he demonstrates his compassion by teaching them. And I wonder, as we look out on our own confused and so very lost world around us, How do we view it? Do we view it merely with disapproval, dismay, regret? Or do we reach out to it as Jesus reached out in his world with compassion? Jesus has wonderful compassion. Secondly, I'd like you to notice with me his impossible demands. Jesus taught them many things and at great length. The disciples, who we've already been told are tired, (laughs) you can kind of read between the lines here and see that not merely tired, but their tiredness had made them tired, uh, but had made them disgruntled. And so they say in verse 35 and 36 to Jesus, it's getting late. The people are hungry. Send them away so they can find themselves something to eat. Jesus, however, replies with an impossible demand. He says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. It's an impossible demand, isn't it? Them? That crowd? I don't think so. And yet you know, as the story unfolds, they, the disciples, will give the crowd something to eat. But for the moment, they are nonplussed as to how they think they can do what he demands. They make a quick calculation on the back of an envelope in verse 37, and they estimate it's going to say eight months' wages uh, to, um, to, uh, to simply pay for all this food, let alone whether to get it from. It does not occur to them that what Jesus asks them to do could be dealt with in anything other than a mundane way. Even though they might by this stage have known better. They had just been give, come back from a trip during which they had been given authority by Jesus to heal and drive out demons. That's in verse 13. They had witnessed Jesus' power over the storm, chapter 4. 
They'd seen his healings, and yet they still don't understand that they can do, in his power, anything in other than a mundane way. And I guess still today the Lord says to us, his people, you give those people something to eat. Feed their bodies. Feed their minds. Feed their souls. And then like Moses, we complain that we lack leadership skills. Like Moses, we say when God asks us to do something, yeah, here am I, send Aaron. Like Jeremiah, we protest that we are the wrong age, too young, too old. Like the disciples, we judge our resources to be utterly insufficient. But you know, if we are tempted to cry out with the Apostle Paul when God asks us to do something in his name, who is sufficient for these things? Let us also join Paul when in the same breath he says, thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. That's 2 Corinthians in chapter 2. Yes, Jesus does make impossible demands. And he knows, as we know, that by ourselves we can do nothing. But with God, nothing is impossible. And now thirdly, Jesus' amazing power. Verses 38 to 44. The disciples have been focusing on what they lack. Jesus focuses on what they have, even though it's not very much. He gets them to do a quick recce amongst the crowd, and they come up with a measly five loaves, little flat loaves, and two fish, probably little dried fish. He uses those resources, and he uses the disciples to accomplish the impossible. He instructs his disciples to organize them in groups. Do you see that in verse 39? And I wonder, as the disciples organized the groups in, uh, the, 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 the vast crowd in groups, I wonder what the crowd thought. I wonder what they were expecting to happen out there in the wilderness. We are not told. We can guess. And then Jesus gives the disciples the multiplied loaves and fishes and gets them to set the food before the people. Very carefully worded in verse 41. And everyone eats as and is satisfied. Verse 42. I suppose part of the meaning of these 12 basketfuls of, uh, of crumbs is... Um, is, uh, is just how real and just how ample this miracle was. But a point that I'm kind of driving at just at the moment is this, that Jesus could have done this, couldn't he, without any resources and without any help from them. But he didn't do it that way. He enables the disciples to do what they thought was impossible. And why did he do it in the first place? 
Well, for Mark, as Will has just been reminding us, the question, especially in this first half of Mark's Gospel, chapters 1 to 8, always lurking in the background, is that question, who is this man? It's cropped up just uh, earlier in chapter 6 and verse 14 to 16. Who is he? Is he John the Baptist? Is he one of the prophets? People keep asking the question. And Jesus keeps encouraging them to ask the question. Because he can't come on to the question, what did Jesus come to accomplish? That's the second half of the gospel. Until there's some resolution to the question, who is he? That's the first half of the gospel. So you find the great turning point in chapter 8, when finally, stutteringly, falteringly, Peter, you know, speak first and put your, your, your mind in gear second. Peter comes up with his great confession. You are the Christ. And then, and only then, Jesus can start to explain to them what he's about to do. Go to Jerusalem, suffer, die, rise again. In this miracle of the feeding of 5,000 people, Mark shows us what John, in his gospel, will tell us. That Jesus is the good shepherd who will lead and protect God's people. That Jesus is the bread of life on whom we can feed in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. But both John and Mark would agree that Jesus has fed the people as only the Lord himself fed the people in Old Testament times. Think manna in the wilderness. Think back to that children's song that we sang earlier. Only God can do that. In verse 52, we read that the disciples still didn't understand about the loaves. Well, we have the benefit of hindsight. We know how the story continues. So we have less excuse than they had for not understanding about the loaves. May God in Christ give us, each one of us this morning, understanding so that we may see who he is, what he came to achieve, that we may share in his compassionate outreach, feeding bodies, feeding minds, feeding souls, comply with his unreasonable demands, for in Christ we can do the impossible, and learn then that when we work with him, nothing is impossible. Let us pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, whatever it is you're calling us to as individual Christians, as families, and as a church, we thank you for the alarm that sends us back to you to rely on you. And we thank you for the excitement that you give us to reach out in compassion, 
to attempt in your name what for us would be otherwise impossible and to do great works for you and to be a blessing to our needy world. Lord, help us, strengthen us, encourage us and help us to see our Lord Jesus shepherding us, nurturing us, protecting and leading us and we will not go astray. Amen.